0: Today's podcast is a conversation with a pediatric gastroenterologist. It's a different kind of conversation for me, and I'm excited to be able to have this conversation on behalf of all the parents experiencing the stress, anxiety, confusion over baby and child gastro issues. From contradictory information in the media, best and worst advice from friends and family, to serious medical challenges. I have a family-time dad and pediatric gastroenterologist at the square table with me tonight, along with a long list of questions that parents have submitted to us. Welcome to Dr. Yoni Fuchs from Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital right here in South Florida. Thank you for giving up a free night and a family night to talk with us. But before we get to the questions, I want you to introduce yourself and describe the biggest questions and concerns that you hear in your practice. And welcome
1: back. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, it's great that you're doing this and that we're reaching not just a community near, but also places far away. Um, so yes, uh, my name is Dr. Fuchs, and I I live in Boca Raton, but I, the bulk of my practice is in Hollywood, where Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital, hospital is. And um, that part of it is important, I was telling you before, that I... Even though I see patients now in Boca Raton, I see patients in Plantation, um, if things get complex, I have colleagues and expertise in infectious disease and in radiology and pathology and the surgical subspecialties at a major children's center. So I think that's important. I uh, wouldn't have... You know, come down here from New York City unless that opportunity was available.
0: And I think that's very reassuring for our parents to hear that they're getting New York Caliber expertise and support. um, That that they don't have to go to New York for those services. That they can get you right here.
1: Right. No. Absolutely. A lot of the physicians that I work with um, come from major centers, whether it be New York City or Atlanta or Los Angeles and uh, or Houston. So. Um, it's a meeting of the minds and so the difficult cases it's easy for me to discuss them with my colleagues or my former colleagues even mm-hmm. um, so I see the, I guess the easier more common things like gastroesophageal reflux colicky babies uh, toddlers that are have constipation issues very selective eaters uh, sometimes they have uh, texture uh, aversion. Uh, some of those uh, children on are on the autism spectrum, right. and that makes things challenging. And then I also see teenagers sometimes with irritable bowel s- syndrome, stomach issues, and some of them have serious diseases like uh, Crohn's disease, for example.
0: Of course. Now, clearly, I mean, this is just off the top of my head, but it does seem like gastro issues, whether it's pediatric or adults, is a dominant dominant. Crisis in our is 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 there is have things changed culturally?
1: I think that I think it is dominant. Of course, I'm a little biased because it's my field, and I see so much volume. But um, I think it centers around the fact that our lives revolve around food and eating. Mm-hmm. I mean, I go to a party, kind of expect to have drinks, meals, and then. <laughs> People's diets have changed. Some people are looking to lose a little bit of weight. Some people are looking for a quick fix. Some kids are really selective and because of what they're eating are not e- using the, ba- the, the right. bathroom as often. And so th- all of these different things, whether it be dieting or issues with eating, um, can result in changes in terms of how you feel. And I do believe like you are what
0: you eat. Well, and all the new gut research. I mean, this is a really extraordinary spot in the body for well-being of every part of the body.
1: Correct. I mean, it gets so complicated. Number one, we probably are seeing more allergic and atopic conditions, and that does get into gastroenterology. We're seeing more Crohn's disease than before. We're seeing more eosinophilic esophagitis than before. That's an allergy type of problem. Um, And we might be seeing some other things more than before, like autism spectrum, which kind of goes plays hand-in-hand hand with gastroenterology mm-hmm, issues. Um, and so, and the last thing is irritable bowel syndrome and how you feel, anxiety in life, um, problems with the home. I don't know if the parents got divorced. I, if, if there's a lot of stress with academics, that can cause Stomach issues. Sure. And I can tell you, I see that a lot, especially in, in
0: teenagers. And the anxiety among teenagers. I mean, uh, it's documented insanely in our world. So yes. yes. Thank you for that medical it's, remedies, problem solving to help with this major crisis that we have. For yeah, you.
1: a lot of teenagers with um, depression or, or anxiety come to a gastroenterologist before they come to the realization that maybe they should also be seeing a Psychologist or somewhere, someone in the mental health right. field, but they have chest pain. Sometimes you see a cardiologist, by the way, but, but they're not having a heart attack. Right. So, um, it, it, but it, it, they do have pain, they absolutely do. So, um, that's sort of the functional or non organic to organic disease. So, that's what I like about the field. It's, so, it's quite varied.
0: This is so exciting. <laughs> okay, so the first place I want to start in was the number one question we got preparing for tonight okay. is ninety five percent of babies, of baby food was tested to have toxic levels of, what was it? Oh, yeah,
1: was <laughs> metals, metals.
0: Yeah, but so it's what's going on? Can babe? Can we eat baby rice foods? Baby rice biscuits? What um, Can we trust FDA? Can we trust organic? How do parents trust? Okay, I've been working with families in parent-child programs for decades. And what I know about this generation of parents is I've never known a generation of parents that couldn't trust their food. Yeah. And so that creates a ton of anxiety, stress, and confusion for parents, and inf- and media Absolutely. information of how do you just go buy I mean, baby food? I my
1: mean, sisters, both of them, parents. <laughs> I my older sister and my younger sister sent me this article before you sent it to me, um, and uh, I've gotten articles um, and concern from families that uh, about their children younger and older that have been on ranitidine or zantac that now they're concerned about contaminants from a batch that was made in china right right. that's a big deal um where is the trust there and that's a medicine that you give to sometimes a five-month-old so fortunately it's a contaminant it was in a it looks like it was more in the tablets or caplets so it's not likely to have affected uh infants or children but what, what's, what's next? And mm-hmm. is there enough control or regulation? Mm-hmm. Um, probably not enough. Of course, the good thing is, and with, with that and also in terms of foods, there are some things that we can do. Um, but before I even get to that, um, I think a lot of times parents or we all can lose track of how amazing our bodies are. Okay? Okay. We have an amazing liver. And we have kidneys. And the healthy infant and the healthy child and the healthy adult uh, is really amazing at detoxifying contaminants, uh, possible carcinogens, etc. So if you think about it, we're putting tons of things, unfortunately, in our bodies. And of course, um, global issues in terms of our environment are becoming more and more important, I, I believe, very deeply in that. Uh, and it's amazing how healthy we can be despite of that and that's because of the robust ability of our immune system mm-hmm. and how the liver in particularly can purify all of that toxic uh, whether it be the metals or other substances right. before they enter the bloodstream so there's no need to panic no question about that uh the the other aspect of it is um, we're looking into this um, I think a lot of those sources come from uh, rice so it's true and I think it was in the article um, maybe in infants we can be looking at alternatives there's no like demand that it's so nutritious or uh, significant to be providing tons of rice cereal to okay. infants and that's where some of the elements from the ground are kind of concentrating um, so it's reasonable to use perhaps oatmeal or um, bananas, sweet potatoes I mean making the stuff yourself it's not that hard to make uh, baby food um,
0: <laughs> says the busy dad
1: <laughs> <laughs> says the busy dad and of course I, I try to pick uh, you know some of the better products I like beech nut for example um, and and it does take extra time but there are in that article there are some foods where we're minimizing the risk and that's all we can do right, um, right. But uh, it's it's not a cause for alarm, but it is a cause for concern. And I hope that there is a push towards better accountability and regulation and, and seeing that not just buying things because of a pretty label or a brand name. It it goes well beyond yeah, that.
0: And transparency into those into uh, the production and all uh, of that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's critical. Okay, so what's the first I'm thinking that it's infant reflux that you that we if we are looking at age by age, is that the first medical thing that you're going to be seeing that the parent that's um, the baby's yeah. not getting... <laughs> um, in the office.
1: So um, gastroesophageal reflux or fussy babies or babies that are spitting up apparently way too much or what more than what a parent would expect is common. Obviously, that's outside of the more complicated things like congenital diseases and, and uh, genetic and metabolic disorders. But certainly in the healthy infant... I do see um, in the office or in the hospital. In fact, I was just I did a consult yesterday for a twin, a NICU baby at at West Boca that was just having a lot of regurgitation and spinning up and so forth. Um,
0: so would that be would that be those symptoms be visible already in the NICU or would would a parent would it, is a parent going to, going to have to make that decision of do I go to the emergency room, where... Well, in the NICU, so in the case,
1: the, in the baby that I saw earlier, it was one of twins. She hadn't been discharged from the NICU, and it is quite common in premature babies to have reflux, simply because their stomachs are super small. It's the size mm-hmm. of a closed fist, the baby's closed fist. The esophagus or the food pipe is quite short still, so there's not much of a distance from the small stomach to the mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's I think the important thing to note is gastroesophageal reflux is common, it's physiologic, it happens in infants in the first, even within the first nine to ten months of life. And gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GERD, is less common and is different from that. So a baby that's spitting up a heck of a lot, even if it's large volumes, but is happy and gaining weight, does not necessarily need any medication. Babies that spit up so much that they're extremely irritable or they are... Um, not gaining weight in an adequate fashion, or um, they have respiratory symptoms as a result of the reflux, which is more common in premature babies or babies with neurological issues, those are the babies that might qualify for the GERD or gastroesophageal reflux disease. Those babies might do better with medication, uh, which is a whole other world, which is also not a quick fix, and that gets complicated.
0: Let's talk about it not being a quick fix, and then I'll I'll go back to some of the questions, because that's certainly... The stress and frustration that I hear in classrooms. You know, parents asking, what formula are you using? What, what, you know, like it's, and it always seems to be trial and error. I see
1: so many parents that I've been on my fifth formula and I've tried everything. Uh, First of all, formulas don't usually address reflux, but formulas can be helpful in a different way and sometimes in ways that we don't understand at the beginning. Some babies with reflux and fussiness actually have something called cow's milk protein intolerance or cow's milk protein allergy. Those are two, which essentially is the same. It's just some people say cow's milk protein allergy and some people say cow's milk protein intolerance. And I think someone had asked a question about Mm -hmm. that. So your baby might be fussy and spitting up a lot because they're intolerant to the formula or or the infant formula, or mom is consuming large amounts of milk from a cow and indirectly giving intact cow's milk protein, and that can make babies spit up more, and more importantly fussier. Some of those babies have very loose stools, mucus in the stool, even traces of blood in the stool. So that's a different diagnosis. So the first thing that I do is try to figure out is it reflux primarily or an allergy? And so...
0: And you can do that at the youngest possible age.
1: Oh, no absolutely. Okay. And I, I check the stool at the bedside to see if there's blood in the stool. It's a very basic thing. And there are more Um, complex or send out tests nowadays or that I can do if I'm not sure. Um, And those babies will do better with a change in formula, but the change has to be to what's called a hypoallergenic formula or an elemental formula. They're more expensive. Mm -hmm. The first step up would be like Alimentum and nutramigen and progestimil and there's others. And the more even more hypoallergenic, which is sometimes necessary, are, are called amino acid-based formulas, like infant Elicare or infant Neocate are probably the two more common ones. And parents get to know these names and words, but they sometimes go to them without, without being clear as to of why. The process, right. um, and so a lot of babies that I see, they don't actually need a medicine. They need to change in terms of the formula. Or mom is breastfeeding, and she may totally continue breastfeeding, but she has to really change her diet and not drink milk from a cow anymore. Sometimes avoiding soy is important. Um, there's a whole algorithm. Mm-hmm. and But we get there. It does get better.
0: And at what point does a family need to see a specialist versus their pediatrician?
1: You know... For what I see now, whenever, I hope I don't upset too many pediatricians, but whenever they're comfortable doing that and they feel like that's what they want to do, sometimes parents just need reassurance from a specialist. I won't necessarily say anything different, but the pediatricians, I see a different, uh, honestly, a range of expertise and a range of the amount of time they're willing to spend with families. And so if you don't feel like you're getting enough time, or you, you feel like the pediatrician is not as comfortable, or you're not quite sure. Nowadays, most insurances, um, you don't necessarily even need a referral. Right. And any pediatrician that I speak with, and I'm friends with quite a number, they're more than happy to give a referral on the parent's request. I mean, it's it's not a big deal. Right, right. It really isn't.
0: Already, your calming influence is, so. is very, very um, reassuring to me. Um, so... I think I'll go right to this GERD question. GERD is common in infants. Can you explain why thickening milk slash formula may be beneficial? What's su- Maybe you just answered this, but I don't know that you answered it. What <clears> suggestions <throat> do you have for parents of babies who suffer from GERD? When is it appropriate to reach out to a pediatric GI versus pediatrician? So I guess...
1: Okay, so some of that I've answered. Um, but a couple of things I just want to say because there's some confusion about it. Thickening... Uh, infant formula or express breast milk is fair game. Um, it, when you make something more calorically dense or heavier, gravity, you're, you're going with mm-hmm. the premise okay. that gravity will help keep it down a little bit. And in truth, it does. If you thicken it too much, then the infant will have trouble just but sucking But the idea it. of
0: cereals into in, in, formula, in formula was never proven, was it? I
1: it's, that. it's. It's, listen, it's not I mandatory. I feel research, like a lot right? of parents are coming in and saying, when can I start cereal? and As if it's like the law. It's certainly not. Um, and you don't have to use rice cereal. You can use uh, oatmeal cereals, and there's other things, products that are out there. You have to be careful if your baby has allergies, uh, and specifically cow's milk protein, because some of these thickeners have traces of cow's milk protein. Okay. Rice cereal, I think the main problem that I see with that is... It um, can cause stool and gas retention or constipation, so the babies get fussy now for a different reason. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other confusion is, yes, it stays down more, but the problem may not have been fussiness from reflux. So parents observe and they see their child regurgitating, whether it be breast milk or an infant formula, and they assume that, well, that must be a problem by definition. It's more often not a problem. There might be colic, there might be... Allergy, like we mentioned, um, or it might be some irritability to the acidity of what's coming up, but that's actually not that common. And in large studies, changing the pH of the stomach in an infant has not resulted in in improvement with respect to fussiness. Um, So that takes me to the last thing I just wanted to say: Zantac, Nexium, Prevacid, Omeprazole—so many medicines that are used for reflux in babies, and these are probably over-prescribed medications. Um, I think sometimes...
0: He's looking very cautious as he says the word over-prescribed. Well,
1: <laughs> they are. I mean, I think that pediatricians want to help. Even by gastroenterologists, they want to give a prescription. Here's something, and then the parents feel better. I got a prescription. It's mm-hmm. almost like validity. Right. Like, you've listened to me because you handed me a script.
0: Right. You know
1: what? It's, it takes a lot less time for me to hand a script over... The visit's done in five or ten minutes. For me, not to give you a script, but instead talk about what I really think might be going on it takes about thirty to forty minutes.
0: Okay. And I'd rather spend this more time. This is really valuable information in a cult in a quick fix culture, and we all. Yes. And so, ha- just say one more thing, if you would, about how not getting that script might be someone who's listening better. And that trust relationship that is needed, and the investment in time. Because I feel that with children in general, we—it's my urgent plea to say, let's give time for development, for learning for, in a, in an educational setting. And you, I feel like you're saying that same thing in a relationship with your with your physician.
1: I think that one of my biggest battles with how I practice. Now, here with a high volume in South Florida, is being able to spend more time. Sometimes parents have to wait quite a bit to see me, and that's really because I insist on taking enough time. Mm-hmm. And it takes more time to educate and to talk about physiology mm-hmm. and what's actually, what could be considered concerning or disease, and what's natural, and what merits testing and pharmacotherapy, and what does not. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of times when parents hear all of of those things and they hear about what the medicine actually does, for example, a very strong acid blocker like Nexium or Prevacid changes the pH of the stomach, but it doesn't change the fact that reflux will continue to occur. Mm -hmm. So when parents understand that, they think about it differently. And so I want parents to leave feeling like they're educated, that they're they're well-informed and... They understand why a prescription was given or not given. And usually if you take the time, at least in my experience, to go through all of that and what the concerns are and what the expectations are in that age, most of the parents are really happy with it.
0: So, and now I'm going to go back to a medical... Because as I was hearing you describe the solving the reflux problem and then creating the constipation problem, I'm sort of oh, imagining like the the digestive problems is like where you have the going down and then you have the going out. Right. I'm, and, and
1: so, go ahead. Well, there's the, just before I go to that, there's something called continuity, and we can always make a change down the line. So, I mean, you try one thing and then maybe see how it goes and we try the next because things change with time. Babies are growing so quickly. Right. So problems that are there in the beginning aren't there even a few in in a few weeks. Um, but um, I don't know. You're asking about issues with
0: well, you had talked about. So, so I think the, you answered the question. Is just if we if we go to solve reflux with something that creates a constipation issue, we'll address that as we as we get to it. So.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: You okay. know, I want to get back to constipation with toddlers because as someone who's written oh, potty training books, oh my god, that's that was the shocker that twenty five percent of my three year old questions are all coming in about toddlers withholding poop and/ or constipation and or painful poops. but let's let's finish let's make sure we got all the babies sure um, sure. so anything else you want to say about the allergies about and what about maturity of a digestive tract? like how does a parent like know how to solve the problems versus letting maturity and development
1: help. Well, you know, the pendulum has swung against, you know, not too many years ago, it was taboo, like forbidden, to give peanut butter, introducing peanuts early in age, and now the pediatric allergy experts are actually saying, if you
0: bomba, bomba challenge
1: bomba. it, <laughs> yeah, and because they've noticed yeah. in, in many studies, and it's pretty well established now, that if you introduce more, um, you are less likely to develop an allergy. And so there seems to be, it's very interesting, um, what we do as parents is a big part of allergy. And that wasn't really considered much in the past. With the exception of if the parents or siblings had anaphylaxis or severe atopy, then you might still use baby steps. Right. Um, but for most children, um, the gut is... Is pretty tough and ready for antigen, and then you know it's sort of the um, hypothesis where it's good to get dirty. Like, exactly. don't be afraid of that. And maybe that's why we're seeing more some people. The sanitized
0: world that is changing gut health. Yeah. Right.
1: Maybe we should go back to the farms and the dirt and and the mud, and then we would have less allergy. And so there's a lot of discussion regarding that. I think it's fascinating, but um, but I think. The babies usually show us the way. If they're not ready, they kind of just, like, it slides out of their mouths, and you try again in a few weeks.
0: Okay, so let me just see if I have... This one's a little bit older. Um... Well, let's go to, no one wants to medicate their kids. However, what words of wisdom can you give a parent that's deciding whether to or not to medicate with something like a PPI or H2 blocker or both? And I have no idea what that means.
1: Right, right. Well, I do. (laughs) And it's amazing, this question. This will make me sound old-fashioned, but really it's the decision mainly. I mean, of course... I know that at the end of the day, the parents are going to either feel confident and go ahead and start a medicine or not. But we should really be relying on the pediatricians and the pediatric gastroenterologists. to see their medications. You need a prescription to write it. You have to have some knowledge. These medications change the homeostasis and the way that the stomach, the the milieu or the environment of the stomach. So PPI stands for a proton pump inhibitor and H2 blocker stands for a histamine 2 antagonist, essentially, or blocker. Both of those medicines, so PPI would be like Prevacid or Nexium or Prilosec, very common in adults. Strong acid blockers, they work on proton uh, pump channels. And H2 is the older medicines, Zantac, Granitidine, Axid. So they both make the stomach less acidic. And the stomach naturally has a pH of maybe 1 or 2 or 3. It's, very, it's a very acidic environment, and by contrast, water has a pH of 7. The stomach is supposed to be acidic. That's what keeps the bad guys from getting beyond the stomach into the small bowel that is more vulnerable. In other words, bacteria, contaminants. Most bacteria will not survive in the pH of the stomach. So when you get rid of that pH and you think you're being really smart and using Zantac or a proton pump inhibitor it's a little bit of a change in the immune system. More things are going to pass through and enter the rest of the gut, which probably isn't a good thing. Um, Also, the acidity of the stomach is what activates um, enzymes that that begin the digestion of proteins. It's amazing how much we can get away with using these medications. Um, What they do, the PPI to a greater extent and the H2 blocker to a lesser extent, is they make the the environment of the stomach, the secretions, everything in there, closer to the pH of water with the idea that, well, if there's reflux, it's non-acid reflux, but there's still reflux in a very, very small subset. And and I mean anecdotal, that seems to help some of the irritability in some babies. I would say it's more likely to help infants and children with neurodevelopmental issues that can't protect their airway as easily, which is... I think most of the parents are talking about their essentially healthy kids. Um, The medications that help improve gastric motility and move things, make the stomach empty more quickly, um, do not include these medications. That would be uh, Reglan or azithromycin. Those medications have important side effects, and so they're not prescribed as often. And so whether to choose one or the other or both,
0: Leave it to your physician. Uh,
1: yeah, but, I, I think but, I think don't look for it. Um, try. Work. I so think it's are better. Parents,
0: are parents coming with a with the internet behind them or yes. the helpful advice of someone? Say, I mean, hopefully this parent just had a lot of experience in the field. But is it um, is it that people are coming to you saying, I'm supposed to get this? Yes,
1: absolutely. They do sometimes, but then I talk to them about. What this is and what's, you know, what what are our expectations? I'm not saying I would never prescribe these medications. Occasionally I do. And if I do, it's a very transparent interaction. We'll try this because A and B didn't work. Or I just have a suspicion that this might be one of those kids where they might respond to it. In a favorable manner, okay. and we'll give it a week or two. And if things and a lot of times they're not. If things are better, then maybe we are moving in the right direction. Sometimes they're already on these medications prescribed by the pediatrician. Most of the time, they're not any better. Oh,
0: okay, okay. Um, and do, do we untreated GI problems in infancy and early childhood impact children down the line? How can they? How, how can untreated mm. GI problems include and uh, affect children down the line? Feeding issues, need for feeding therapy. What happens if they go untreated?
1: Right. This and is how could super, they go untreated? It's a super broad question okay. because um, GI problems, you know, wow. So yeah, what's okay. the GI yeah. problem? Okay. But I think it can be a good entry into... A GI problem that I see not treated well for years, which is constipation.
0: Okay, let's go, um, let's go into that. And point. that can
1: cause problems yeah. if, if it's not addressed early on in life. And that is maybe not maybe it is the most common problem that I see in the office. Okay,
0: let's go there. Let's so describe the common aspects of that problem.
1: Um, oh, sure. Well, it's typically I don't know. Mom brings in her two and a half or three year old.
0: Um, I mean, we have a we have a thing here of mom. I mean, let me just read this. Maybe yeah, I, I think there was a question. Okay. Both my boys suffered from reflux, and both around the age of one were off meds completely and doing very well. My oldest, now two, suffers from terrible constipation and has since he was an infant. I tried it all, probiotic, prebiotic, fiber gummies, Miralax, milk of magnesia, suppository. I hated that he was on Miralax, so I weaned him off by giving him fiber gummies alone, which was working for a month or two. I'd love to hear about what the doctor says about chronic constipation in toddlers. I'm trying to start potty training, but can't because the constipation is so bad. Um, I'm not sure if he's holding it in at this point. Currently, he's going five to six days without a bowel movement, and then she gives him a suppository.
1: Okay, this is exact. I see... I don't know. I, might I see was sh- 18 or 19 patients. A bunch of them will be exactly what's scenario. going on. Exactly the scenario. Um, by the way, I'm not sure if he's holding it in. He is holding it in. In, in all so I know like so stool withholding behavior is a big
0: and and I will say yeah. we can go back to potty training we might even want to do a it's potty connected. training it's
1: connected it's connected
0: because my what I mm-hmm. learned when the, my, I had a publisher ask me to write the potty training book and I was like oh sure like we all know how this works together we know the developmental readiness and then when I took the questions from the parents I went oh, this is about who's controlling the potty experience. Yeah, and absolutely. then I realized withholding, if if, if there if one of those readiness pieces weren't in place or there was over control, then I was seeing a whole behavioral response to potty training.
1: Yeah, the reason why, remember I'm a specialist in gastroenterology, meaning that I see a lot of failures and I see a lot of second and third opinions from other gastroenterologists. And what I notice is that... It's a very similar story. I don't want to use the Miralax anymore. totally get it. Um, The problem is that everybody... And everybody has their heart in the right place, including the pediatricians. And some of them are starting to do what I do also, although not that often. The problem is that a big piece of the puzzle is not addressed. And that's the behavioral component. And... Sometimes eventually it works itself out over years, I would imagine, but sometimes it doesn't. And then I see mm-hmm. yo- uh, 10th graders, 11th graders with fecal overflow and soiling in their underwear, and it's embarrassing. Their problem started many years ago.
0: All right, so how and do that's we avoid that? How do we avoid that?
1: So... What usually the story is the following. So I like to tell it in a chronological manner. I think that's the way it makes sense to me, and people can understand it. The story starts just a little before after the first year of life. I think that a lot of it's one year olds are really smart. that I've learned. You know Very smart. 10, ten, eleven months, twelve months, there's savvy. There's something already happening there. And so perhaps because they got over a virus, perhaps because they had um, not enough prunes for a few days, something happened, didn't take in enough. The bowel movement or the stool was very hard to pass. It was difficult. Maybe it was small. Maybe it happens at 13 months of age, but it's, they start to have trouble with it. And it happens once or more than once. And they associate that activity or that occurrence yes. with a traumatic as a traumatic issue. Like, it's... That was horrible it's experience. It's avoidant. Clench up. Yeah. Right. That was a horrible experience. So, the next time it starts to happen, how can I defend myself? Because I don't want that big thing to come out of... That That was really painful. So, their only defense, because nobody's going to help them, nobody understands, is to clench up, like, just to hold it in. And this is called stool withholding behavior. And unfortunately... These now toddlers, as they're getting a little bit older, they get really good at it. Mm -hmm. Expert at stool withholding. Really good at not going to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And it's a small little, well, it's not as uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable, but it's not as bad as what if I didn't do that. Because that's a disaster. That was a traumatic experience. And that can go on for months, for years. And so as they get better at it, like this Mommy wrote in, five or six days, no bowel movement. I've seen 11, 12 days, 14 days, no bowel movement. We all know these young children are eating food, so they're producing more byproduct. Um, but And so it's getting built up. The babies, young children are getting distended with gas because gas is trapped because stool is there, uh, and the gas cannot escape. They are even pickier eaters because they have no appetite because they're full of stool and gas. And of course, it's just, it's a cyclical nature, but it's going in the wrong direction. And um, I've seen some pretty awful cases. And the only way to address it, and before I say that, fiber gummies, Miralax, mommy writes, probiotic, prebiotic, those things might help I don't know, a seven-year-old or an adult that, you know, it's just a little bit hard, want to kind of regulate a little bit better. Sure, those all can work in those scenarios, but those people are not trying to hold it in. So uh. they are not having the behavioral problem. If I need to use the bathroom, I just go. Of course, I'm a gastroenterologist. So I, 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 We, as adults, we understand that it's probably better to just use the bathroom than to hold it in unless it's an emergency. You're driving and you're halfway to Naples. And the gas station bathroom is disgusting. Right, right. But these babies are doing it every, or young infants, young toddlers rather, are doing it every time they need to go to the bathroom. So, that's an um, inappropriate or maladaptive mechanism, and that's what happens. And that's why it becomes so. Do
0: you have physical? solutions um, besides working on the, beha- I mean, we're not going to work on a we're not going to send them to the behavior therapist yet at one and I, we can, right. I can support and, and lots of, every, we can all be supporting calm, gentle environments and healthy food. and I mean, I, but I have had parents say to me, my daughter's constipated, she doesn't like to go and we're eating a ton of dairy and I'm like no, no, you can help, you can help modify the diet right. so, and, and she's I, like no, my daughter won't eat important. that. Right. And like, so now well, we have that's oh, another, another behavior
1: issue that right. could be a challenge even without constipation so right. that's a whole other so, uh, but so
0: we have a constipated baby, toddler, young toddler what's your recommendation? so that's
1: the story so then my strategy is to rely on sort of Skinner's behavioral medicine or behavioral psychology I should say and that is use something at least on a temporary basis to cause a bowel movement to occur on a regular basis. A comfortable bowel movement. A comfortable. So instead of polyethylene glycol, which is Miralax, um, fiber, which is great, but it's probably not going to push the needle enough when these babies are so good at holding it in. So usually something that has senna. Senna is a plant, but the leaves have medicinal properties. And um, products that contain senna at the right amount will cause a bowel movement about eight nine hours later and it's hard to hold that in okay Okay. and so the child will it'll happen whether they like it or not and then once it's and then you add the fiber and of course the dietary changes and as that's happening when something occurs whether you're trying to push against it or not then all of a sudden it's not worth the effort anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you can start with the potty training and things like that. Um, so it's really taking advantage of the fact that people are not going to push against the wall if it can't be moved.
0: Can I ask a, a silly question? I mean, I, I don't have children. I don't remember being that that young. <sighs> Are you is it diet related that there that you might describe a significant number of toddlers having hard and uncomfortable stools? Is that I mean is most that some,
1: often most often it, well that, it's both. Is that
0: avoidable? Okay. Yes,
1: no, no absolutely. So it's diet related without question. However, um, it's also because of what we talked about stool withholding behavior. It's also related to behavior. So it, it may start diet related, or maybe not even. Maybe it's a virus or something that causes a, a okay. change okay. a change in motility. Okay. Some people, when they get sick or they have a gastroenteritis, they have loose stools. But then they have they you overdo it with. Um, Bananas and bread and so forth, and then they get okay. really backed up. Right. And then they, some kids don't recover from that too easily. Okay, okay. But, um, so, high-fibrous foods are really important. Prunes, peaches, pears, plums, oranges. Um, and these are the foods that are not, um, a lot of little kids are not big fans of. Right, right, right. And bread and milk. And rice um, don't really help with motility. And those bananas—they
0: love those bananas. yeah.
1: Yes, <laughs> bananas are healthy, but they're, great. they're
0: not... But not six of them for breakfast, right? Correct. <laughs> so we did have one other question about the uh, probiotics, and that was: um, Do you do? How about the use of probiotics on newborns and mm-hmm. toddlers? Now you had just said. Maybe at 7, but would you recommend? So,
1: would... Oh no, um, probiotic. there are probiotics uh, that are appropriate for, for babies, no no doubt about it. Um, I think they're most helpful, at least in studies, for those infants with cow's milk protein intolerance. Um, it's not clear why, but the early introduction of probiotic therapy, such as lactobacillus reuteri or lactobacillus GG, um, helps to mitigate the effects of the allergy. So babies typically grow out of intolerance to cow's milk protein earlier if they've been on probiotics. Oh, okay. And, and some do, you- studies show some improvement with, with, with respect to fussiness and colic uh, when probiotics are tried. But there are a lot of different types of bacteria and probiotic uh, products out there, so you have to be careful which one you choose.
0: Any recommendations or...?
1: Um, I mean the the ones that contain a fair amount of lactobacillus rutili. I think Gerber Sooth, um, BioGaia. Uh, there are so many out there now, but um, uh, lactobacillus GG, Saccharomyces boulardii. Those are the names of the actual bacteria. They know what you're
0: talking about. I don't, but uh, I know they know.
1: <laughs> um, no, th- th- there are many, but um, and they sometimes can help with bowel movements and colicky infants in particular. So sure.
0: Okay. And then the big sort of wrap-up question that I have for you that's not our official wrap-up is how to know whether you have the right practitioner or to trust your instincts if you don't feel you're getting the progress or answers you need. Um, so it's the Always
1: trust your instincts. I mean there's so many stories of parents that were sent home from the ER and something's not right, and they go back. And the kid, this happened last week, by the way, ended up having a volvulus, uh, you know, a vomiting toddler and was assessed. They were told it was just a dehydration from a virus, just which is true most of the time. But Parents it, it know. just kept happening. The vomiting be- became different in nature. It was green or black. And they went right back. And and it was indeed a a twisting of the gut, and that kid did well. But a day or two later, there would have been necrose bowel, which is can be obviously fatal. So, so definitely, nobody knows your child better. Nobody knows your child
0: better than, than you. I love. I mean, this has been so enjoyable no for me. First, for your calming demeanor, for your knowledge, your your experience, your everything, and then um, the trust that that I hear that I that I know that you would be establishing with your with the parents and families yeah. that you see. So I appreciate it. Um, so my other question for you is: You're a dad um, with three children. How True. Um, how do you juggle? Um, Working with children professionally, in serious situations, and being a dad, and, and and then just the day-to-day of keeping them healthy. I don't know. It's a big question, whatever you want to answer. humor.
1: It. I come home, and my wife's like, <laughs> Noah hasn't pooped yet. I'm like, I just got home. I've been dealing with this all day. But... It's totally cool because I love my <laughs> kids to death, and I'm so blessed that they're healthy and happy and it's so exciting to have children and uh, it it has made everything personal. I think it's made me a better physician to be honest you don't really understand until it's your you come home to these kids and then that's where even a parent that seems to, oh, they really want this prescription, or they seem to be really demanding, or they, they researched the internet and they have their own professional opinion. You know what? They're they're almost always they're coming from the right place. Right. They have big hearts. They just want their kid to be better. So it's it's fair game. And so uh, I think I think it's just given me a little bit more compassion.
0: I love it. Um, And we always have a wrap-up question, which is, how have you got this for right here, right now? And usually we're talking about people's personal experiences in some setting. But how have you got this as a professional, knowing what you know about gut health, medicine, and, and the hope, I think, for a new generation that's getting extraordinary care from yourself and from your peers? Because um, I, I, what I love about this podcast is how positive you are about the human body and about the process of getting medical care, which we often feel um, frustrated with. And so I, I guess I'm asking you for a positive about how you've got this. And you just know that what you do matters and is making a difference. And, and how would you convey that to parents who are on the receiving end of Uh, the challenges when they begin their crisis moment yeah no
1: just know that you are your child's greatest advocate yeah and uh, and so today the reality is that pediatricians have a really difficult job they are seeing tremendous number of patients in order to um, keep their practices alive and it's not like what it used to be reimbursements are less um And so it's become difficult. We're seeing more nurse practitioners and physician assistants, which is fine, handling primary care. But we are also seeing a lot of turnover in terms of you'll see a different pediatrician every time and parents get frustrated. Insurances are changing. Uh, Continuity of care is not what it used to be. A lot of pediatricians are not taking insurances uh, because of those issues. So I think the parents have to even more so go with their instinct, their gut, like, push a little bit more to see a specialist, perhaps another specialist. I've seen many kids that have seen different doctors, other gastroenterologists. You know, it's fine. Um, sometimes looking at it from a different vantage point is important. But the most important thing is, even if it's just reassurance, or if it's just to make sure that things are okay, or you're seeking different care for a child that has established Crohn's disease or eosinophilic esophagitis. There are actually a lot of different strategies for a lot of these different processes because we're learning so much. And if you've been trained in different places, you may have a different way of going about or a different methodology. And so one particular doctor may be a better match for you than another one.
0: Perfect. Thank you. I feel like you should have a podcast of your own. You could could be putting out so much valuable information. So thank you. Well, thank thank you you for
1: for having me. It was a pleasure being here. Thanks
0: for your time. You're welcome. Wait, we had one more extra thought that I need on the mic.
1: Sure. I mean, um, going back to the mom that asked, which medicine should I use, a PPI or an H2 antagonist? Which therapy would be best? I, I think what's happening there is that parent is taking on an overwhelming amount of responsibility. Unless he or she is a physician or a gastroenter- it's hard enough for a specialist sometimes yeah, to yeah. figure these things out. So that's a lot of stress.
0: It's a lot of stress. <laughs> yeah,
1: like, let me try to figure it out and guide you. And um, there's so much just... Being a parent in terms of making decisions, so obviously I like to involve the families and educate them as much as possible, but I sense that in that question, the mom herself was kind of taking on a lot, and that that is difficult. And
0: I needed that on the mic because I think <laughs> that that is, I will quote you on that for the next 10 years, which is, You don't, parents don't have to make every decision on their own shoulders or by themselves.
1: Utilize utilize us, that's what we're here for. You won't
0: be, it won't feel so lonely out there if you realize everybody's here to help. Thank you. So that's the mess for today. We appreciate you listening to See Me, Hear Me, Love Me. Seeing little people learn and grow. Listening to parents taking a crazy, uncertain journey. Loving the fun and loving the mistakes. You write the rules, you write your story. We just want to be part of the conversation. But in the end, we know you got this. We'll catch you next week. Take care. Wait, wait, wait. One more thing. If you liked our podcast, please tell a friend. Or even better, write us a review at iTunes. We'd also like to invite you to join us on Facebook. That's with me, Karen Deerwester. And check out the parenting resources at FamilyTimeInc.com. You'll also find us on Twitter at at Family Time, Inc. and Instagram at Karen underscore Time. Thanks for listening today. Thanks to everyone at B'nai Torah Congregation for this wonderful space. Thanks to Darren Lippman for the great intro. And thanks to the front and the follow for the song Listen. We are listening. See you next week.